you know, I was scared and nervous driving to work and, um, you know, I, w- I would drive to work slow and nervous and, and I would drive home like 90 miles an hour so I could get home and have a drink and kind of, you know, self-medicate and the anxiety would go away and I had no coping skills. So I coped with alcohol and um, early January of 2012, I had started missing some work days and it kind of got perpetual a downward spiral and I would wake up with so much anxiety that I would have a couple of drinks and then I wouldn't go to work. A girl I was dating at the time, she came home from work and it was late and I was drunk and we were sitting on the couch and she starts talking about it and you've been drinking all day and she just looked straight at me and she said, you have a problem and I want to hear you say it. And I said, I'm an alcoholic. And she said, we can get you help right away. So I um, (laughs) stood up from the couch and I took six or eight steps around the coffee table and like it was gone, just like that. And... um, you know, as if I had never had a drink. And I drank heavy day in and day out for 20 plus years, you know, probably since I was 17, 18 years old. And at this point, I'm 38 um, when this happened and uh, it was just gone. I haven't had a drink since, Um, no desire, Um, just gone. It was Jesus Christ and there was no other explanation for it. Like two or three months into sobriety, I went to Kentucky to visit my parents. And um, my dad said, you've changed. Not, Not really knowing what I was doing. And, you know, I was, I was putting work in and and going to meetings and, um, you know, really trying to um, make amends with people that I had heard along the way. And, but yeah, he had no idea. And um, that really, that was nice to hear. I really went from, you know, just a matter of a short period of time, went from restless, irritable, and discontent to happy, joyous, and free and people could see it. Good morning, church. Welcome to Union Chapel. So glad you're here and watching online. This is the day the Lord has made. We're rejoicing and glad in it. Listen, you have a story. I have a story. We all have a story. Troy Mink has a story. Zowie. And there's power in the story. And let me just remind you that no one cares about your story more than God does. And no one has more power to change your story, transform your life, than God does. Amen. And so we've been watching Jesus interacting with different people in the Gospels 
during this series where their lives have been changed, their stories transformed because of that encounter. Today we want to pick up a story that many of you are familiar with. It's the story of the paralytic who was lowered down through the roof by his four friends. Let's see what we might learn from this. We've chosen as our text today from Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. Mark 2, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses there. The custom is to stand, so as you're able, thank you for doing that. Of course, we'll project the words on the screen. Now, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Now, we might just pause and note something here. Capernaum was Jesus' home away from home. Uh, In his more adult years, this is where he lived. This is his base, his home base, Capernaum. It was uh, closer to the sea and um, was a good place to be. And so he had come home. He'd been out on the road. This was early in his ministry, preaching, teaching, and healing. And he had come home to Capernaum. Now, this is something probably you've never heard before. This may be Jesus' own house. We don't know that he had a home, an actual home that he lived in or someone had given to him to live in, but it could be that this was where he he stayed when he wasn't on the road preaching. So they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit This is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. I I bet that's right. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Thanks so much. Two basic points, if you have the outline there uh, on your phone uh, or on your pad, uh, let's just rehearse this story for a moment. Jesus is in Capernaum, and it's crowded. Now, we ask, why is it so crowded? This is early in Jesus' ministry, and we learn about a healing miracle that he performed. It's recorded in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. So the chapter just ahead of this, just literally, maybe the same day, but uh, just within hours of him arriving home in Capernaum, he has healed a man who is leprous. This, This leprous man came to Jesus. He's begging. He gets down on his knees in front of Jesus, and he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus is disturbed by the phrase, if you're willing, because he is willing. Uh, The Bible actually uses the word indignant toward the leprous man. And Jesus reaches out and touches this leper. This is breaking the rules, you understand. No one else would touch this man. Jesus touches him, and he is immediately cleansed. Jesus then tells this man, now go to the priest, because there is a 
ritual, there's a process to be reinstated in the synagogue. And if you've been healed of some disorder like this, you have to go there and report it to the priest and, and bring uh, an offering, a sacrifice. And the priest then orders certain uh, days for this cleansing ritual. And he orders the man to do that. Well, the man doesn't do it. He's th- so thrilled that he's been healed that he goes out and starts telling everybody. Jesus said, don't. He sternly warned him, please don't tell anyone about this because Jesus knows what will happen. See, this is, this is first century Palestine. Uh, you cannot overlay any of the miracles of modern medicine on this generation. First century Palestine, if, if uh, you had cataracts, for example, you would just go blind. There's no remedy for that. If, uh, if you, if you uh, uh, had an appendicitis, you would just die because no one knows how to perform an appendicitis and appendectomy. So you, you, you're just dead. If you're pregnant and you cannot manage to give birth in a natural way, you're going to die and likely the baby too. So people who got injured or got sick were very precarious. The, the average lifespan was about 45 years old. How many of you would already be dead in Palestine for a century? See, I'm already out. I'm, I'm, I'm way gone. So, so here, here are people who are, who are very desperate for physical help. And Jesus heals a guy and the word gets out. I mean, nobody gets healed from leprosy and the word gets out. And so, so imagine that, uh, put it in this context. Do you suppose the company, the research lab, the drug company that produces a, a uh, virtuous and safe vaccine for COVID-19 is going to be a popular business? Can you imagine? There's going to be a handful of these companies around the world who are going to emerge at a very similar point in time, some months from now, and it's going to be, it's going to be effective and it's going to be safe and here's what's going to happen. The whole world's going to get in the line and with a fistful of money in their hand. I will take that vaccine, please. And everyone, everyone will play along. And the companies that have developed this vaccine are going to be happy, happy about it because of the effect. This is what happens. This is what happened to Jesus. He, he, he is the guy with the answer. He's the guy with the healing touch. And we learn later in his ministry that he would actually go into villages and everybody who was sick and diseased and had disorder in the whole town would be healed. And so this guy got a reputation. Now you can understand then the press of people that would, that would crowd him. So even when he gets back home, you know, he's probably dog tired and needs to lay down, but instead he finds a house surrounded with people. We heard you were back in town and we brought some sick people along with us. And, and so the, the house is full, the surrounding of the house is full, and these four friends of a paralyzed man bring him a bit late to the party. They can't get in the door, they can't get through the window, you can't get there. And so they go around back where there's a staircase, this is common, first century. If you, if you see a pitched roof there, you'll be misidentifying this. The roofs were flat and they, they, they had, you know, a substructure and then mostly mud on the top, some biology pieces and some mud 
Yeah, there wasn't a lot of rainfall in that part of the world. So they would build staircases up to the roof. And, in the, and the sun was hot during the day, but in the evening it would get cooler. And so people would go up on the roof to cool off in the night. And in the summer months, they'd actually sleep on the roof uh, because it was much more comfortable. And so these guys carry their friend up on the roof and start cutting a hole in the roof. <laughs> and they lower their friend down through the hole in the roof down to where Jesus is. And verse 5 of our text, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Yeah. Now, it's, it's, in, it's interesting um, that Jesus responds to their faith. Now, hang on that for a second. It's, it's really interesting. It's very, very powerful. Now, there are also... There are also present in the room Pharisees. Now, we've talked about the Pharisees in the last few weeks, and we've learned that they are hyper-legalists. They followed to the, to the letter of the law all of the Mosaic law. There are over 600 laws that were passed down from Moses, and then on top of that, they added oral laws, hundreds more, that pertain to every single aspect of life that you can imagine. And these guys were determined to follow these laws. It made them feel better about themselves and it also made them quick to judge others who weren't as disciplined and dutiful toward the law as they were. We, we have legalists in our world today. Uh, we have political legalists. We have ideologues in our culture, philosophical legalists. If you don't agree with me and what I think, then you're bad and you're evil. And this is the same kind of attitude, same kind of spirit, and it's destructive. It wounds people, it hurts people, it destroys the spirit of people. And so legalism is not good. Jesus was in constant uh, contention with the Pharisees because Jesus didn't play along with their nonsense at all. In fact, one day Jesus was telling this story in front of some of them and a big crowd of people. He said, look, there was a Pharisee and a tax collector who wasn't, <laughs> wasn't of high reputation either in the culture who went into the temple to pray. And the Pharisee said with a loud voice as he praised God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And then praised himself, I fast and give alms to the poor. He said, but the tax collector, on the other hand, wouldn't even raise his face, wouldn't even look up when he prayed. He was penitent and humble. And he prayed, I'm unworthy to receive your touch. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so Jesus said, and concluded it was the tax collector who went home justified because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And so Jesus was constantly poking these guys back because they were constantly poking at him and poking at other people who weren't living up to the expectations of the law. And Jesus, Jesus was mean toward these guys. And so what do you mean Jesus was mean? Yeah, the only people Jesus was mean to were people who were mean to other people. Now, hang on to that, because that applies in our culture and in your life and mine. So they were very religious, very devout, these Pharisees, but they were blind, 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 blind. They couldn't see. They had ritualized and externalized their religion, making them blind to the condition of their own hearts and therefore insensitive to the, to the people around them. So Jesus comes along, and he's in great conflict with them. So they begin to shadow him. And they follow him around, looking for a reason to accuse him and ultimately to eliminate him. 
They are in the house that day when the healing of the paralytic takes place. The paralyzed man is lowered to the floor. Jesus seeing the faith of these friends, he sees their faith and he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees sitting on the front row, they go, aha, we got you. Blasphemy. No one can forgive sins except God alone. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. So is there another option here besides blasphemy? There is another option, which they are blind from seeing, which is this Jesus is God. He's the God man. And he, and he does have authority to forgive sins. And it's a very powerful thing. So here's what Jesus did. Knowing what they're thinking, he gives them undeniable proof of who he is. Verses 8 to 10. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? What's the answer to the question? Which is easier to say? God bless you, friend. Your sins are forgiven. Guy's laying there as a quadriplegic. Guy's going, yeah, great. Thanks a lot. (laughs) It's really helpful. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and go. And of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But Jesus says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man (laughs) stands up, picks up his mat, walks on out, heading home. And here's the paraphrase. Jesus is going, you want to know who I am? I'm about to show you who I am. Yeah. So he got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. Verse 12, this amazed everyone. They praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now notice it, it, it says that they were amazed. It says that they praised God, but it does not say that they believed. And the Pharisees saw this miracle right in front of their eyes and they still didn't believe. Isn't that fascinating? It's just remarkable. Still would not believe. So that's the story. And, and if you've ever been in church for any length of time in your life, you've heard this story. If you were a child in church growing up, you've heard this story. It's, an, it's a very interesting story. What are things we can learn? Let's make the application. This is the second point in the sermon. We only have two points. Everybody smile. I can't see you smiling very well. All right. Here's the application. This is what we learn. Number one, we learn the power of friendship. The power of friendship. Who wouldn't want to have four friends like these? Aren't these guys great? I mean, these are the kind of friends who do anything to help you. Have you ever said that about a friend of yours? She would do anything in the world to help me. Do you have a friend like that? He would do, all I have to do is ask. All I have to do is let him know what the need. He would do anything in his power to help me. He is a good friend. Maybe you have a small group like that. The, the, the friends that we have in our small group, we know that we would do anything we can, anything within our power to help one another. Isn't that a great thing? Everybody needs friends like that. 
Have you ever, have you ever prayed, interceded on behalf of someone you know and love who maybe is in another community or another place of the world and you've prayed that God would send someone, a servant of his into their life to influence and impact them? Have you ever prayed that prayer? I've prayed that prayer. Can we just, can we flip that over? Not only should we pray for friends to befriend people that we know and love, but we should also position ourselves as the potential answer to that kind of praying. There may be someone in another city somewhere praying that you and I might be engaged as a friend in the life of someone they know and love. So not only do we pray, God, send friends into my loved one's life. How about pray, God, make me a friend in the life of someone who's precious to another person. It's good, that's a good challenge, isn't it? You need to think that way. Well, I was on the, uh, listening to the radio in the car. Uh, this has been a few years ago, and I had it on a Christian station, and a, and a preacher came on, and he said, he said, my text today is, is Mark chapter two, the paralyzed man and his four friends. And I went, oh yeah, well, this could be interesting. He said, I've, and the title of my message is, check this out, four of a kind beats a full house. <laughs> four of a kind beats a full house. I heard that and I thought, that is brilliant. That is just so impressive. I just thought that's the best title of a sermon I've ever heard. And it still is the best title of a sermon. I mean, it's perfect. Just so relevant, so right on point. <laughs> Four of a kind beats a full house. And I said, I'm going to stay on this station and listen to this guy. Uh, the sermon was terrible. But the title, the title was amazing. I was so impressed with that. <laughs> so we know the power of friendship. That's a wonderful application here. Here's the second thing we learned from this story. And that is the power of desperation. The power of desperation. Now hear me out. Desperate people do desperate things. It's true, isn't it? Like go to Jesus. I'm desperate. I'm running to Jesus. I have nowhere else to go. I'm running to Jesus. We let our desperation drive us in the right direction toward Jesus. We pray better when we're desperate. There are people in this room right now. There are certainly people listening online this morning. And you are at a place in your life where you know there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to turn. There is no earthly power that can meet your need. You need to call on Jesus. Now listen to me. Anything that drives us to Jesus, ultimately, hear me, ultimately is a good thing. It may be horrible circumstances, Maybe even the most incomprehensible tragedy in your life. Maybe the darkest season, the darkest days of your whole life. But ultimately, because God is a God who redeems. God is a God who can transform. God is the God who can change something bad and turn it to good. Because God alone has the power to do that. If, you dry, if it drives you to Jesus, it's ultimately good. And so let me just encourage you. Let, let me encourage you. Now, there's pushback to this. The, 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 a person will say, well, that's, you know, that's not authentic. That's not sincere. If you run to Jesus just because you need help, that's, you, know, you can't expect God to help you. That's like being in a foxhole. It's foxhole religion. Have you ever heard that phrase? We all understand the whole foxhole faith. 
which is a person in a foxhole who has little hope of surviving. And so they start making deals with God. They're desperate. And so the prayers go something like this, Lord, if you get me out of this one, I promise. And then they start making a list of promises they'll make. And they call it foxhole religion. People on the outside being cynical will look at that and say, well, that's not sincere. You know, you didn't have any choice. And that's what made you run to God. <laughs> that's foxhole religion. So it doesn't count. Wait a minute. Slow down there. As it turns out, you and me and everyone else in the world, all of us realize at some point in our life that we are lost, that we are undone, that we are separated from God by our sin and our rebellion, and that, that we are helpless and there is no hope. This is called the conviction of sin and a deep and real sense of lostness. I'm lost without hope. I need something, I need someone beyond myself, beyond my capacity to rescue me, to deliver me from this state of separation in relationship with God. As it turns out, listen to me, all faith is foxhole faith. Everyone who comes to a meaningful faith in Jesus Christ do so in a foxhole, in a desperate place. And that's how stories are born. Once I was lost, but now I am found. Once I was blind, but now I can see. Once I had no hope, no hope, but now I have an eternal hope that is made secure and does not disappoint because of my faith in Jesus Christ. So listen to me. There is power in desperation. And it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing when it causes us to run to Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's so, that's so right. Now, here's, here's a third thing that we can apply and learn, and that is the power of faith. The power of faith. So, it's so vital and pervasive in this story. And so we need to pause here and just, just mention it a, a moment. Now, if you've been in the Christian culture, Christian community for some years, you know that there are, there are folks who have a worldview and a theo theological position that, that, that includes a very central role of faith in, in all of life. And, and some of it's called hyper-faith teaching and, and uh, you know, all of the faith, you know, whatever ministry occurs in that context, that culture, faith is in the title ever-increasing faith ministries and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have people on one end of the spectrum who just says faith is, is so important. It's critically important. And if you don't have faith, then you can't expect God to help you. And then on the other side, you have people who just say, well, look, it's not always about how strong you are in your faith, you know, because God meets people's needs regardless of how strong someone's faith is. And so you maybe just need a spark of faith, just a little seed of faith. And, and so there's this whole spectrum of things. I'm not going to land myself on this spectrum today, but I am just going to talk generally about faith, things that all of us can appreciate and value about faith. Let me just mention this. First of all, faith always goes to work. Faith always goes to work. Now, here's what I mean by that. This paralyzed man had four friends, and they got busy. They had faith, real faith. 
in Jesus. They'd heard the reports, this guy's a healer. If, if you get in the presence of Jesus and he touches you or prays for you, you're going to get better. So their faith was growing and they had a sincere, strong faith in Jesus, or at least enough that they, they decided, let's get our paralyzed friend into the presence of Jesus. And so they got to work. Now, what did they have to do? Well, they had to go down and pick this guy up, pick him up all, and, with his mat and start carrying him. Took four of them. And they're on the way and, they, you know, and they're slowed down because they're carrying this, this guy. And they get there and the place is already crowded and they can't get into the door. I mean, folks just won't let them through. Could, excuse me, let me through. No, no, <laughs> you can't get through here because everybody's desperate, pressing in. So you can't get through, can't get in the window. And so, okay, let's take him up on the roof. And, they, and, they, and they're working. Listen, this is a very, very practical application of faith. If you have a sincere faith, it will always move you to action. James famously said in his New Testament letter, faith without works is dead. So, so if you say you have faith and you don't do anything in a, in, by way of action in response to your faith, then please, the Bible says, don't tell me you're faithful because unless you put it to work. So this comes into play so that so that I, if I have faith, it means that I'm going to reach out to people in need. Because by faith, I believe that if I offer a cup of cold water or a shirt for someone's back, uh, someone at the basic level of need in their life, if I'm, if I'm good about that, if I exercise my faith by meeting the needs of the poor, that God will actually move in that context and make a difference in, in people's lives, theirs and mine. I have faith for that. Or The Bible says to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all the peoples of the world. Make disciples. Okay, there's a mandate. Do I have faith that God will be with me if I do that? And he will will empower me to actually penetrate other cultures and other groups of people who have yet to hear the glorious hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes, my faith, my faith makes me move. My faith causes me to take action. And so... And so crazy people in Muncie, Indiana, decide 20 years ago, 25 years ago now, that we're going to adopt an unreached people group in Central Asia, in Kazakhstan. And over the next 25 years, we're going to send hundreds of people from our congregation and our partner churches to Kazakhstan. And we're going to have about 20 people from our congregation who live in Kazakhstan full time. And we're going to learn the language and learn the culture and tell the story of Jesus and make disciples. And we have a 25-year story now to tell about stepping out in faith and seeing the miraculous work of God as a result of that. Faith always takes action. It always goes to work. It happens in the, in the categories of time and talent and treasure. How do I use my time? How do I use my talents, my natural gifts, my spiritual gifting? How do I give the, the, invest and steward the resources that God gives me otherwise? How do I do that? I do it by faith. I do it by faith. Faith is put into action when I volunteer my time when I exercise my gifts in service to others, when I give money to help benevolent causes and the kingdom of God. You do that by faith. 
I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I'm giving, I don't feel it. I'm not happy about it. You know, God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, well, God's loving somebody else right now because I'm not all cheerful about it. And so, but I'm giving it, but I do it by faith. It puts my faith into action. And I'm not only trusting that God's going to meet the needs of other people as a result of my giving and God's going to get glory. I'm also by faith believing I'm going to be blessed for it. What I've discovered is that God is a faithful God. And he always makes good on his promises. And so we, we activate our faith. We put it into action. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And so faith always has about it action. Here's something else about faith. It always persists. It doesn't give up. And these four guys persisted, didn't they? I mean, it's a beautiful model of faithfulness. As they just kept going, they're not going to stop until they get their friend in front of Jesus. They're not going to give up. They're not going to quit. They're not going to take no for an answer. Uh, they, they might be rejected and rejected and rejected, but they are going to persist. And that's what faith does. Faith always keeps going. And let me just tell you another thing about faith. This is just a general idea, and that is that faith always succeeds. Faith is always rewarded. And that God rewards those who diligently seek him. And so we know that there's reward in walking by faith. And so the power of faith is so vital in this story and so vital in our lives. Here should be our prayer all the time. God, increase my faith. God, increase my faith. Increase my faith. Now, we know that faith comes by a couple of things. One, it comes by hearing the word of God. Right now, some of your faith is stronger than when you came in today. Because I've just been talking about faith, and you go, yeah, my, I want my faith to be strong so that I can exercise it more consistently, put it into action. And that's good. So faith comes by hearing the truth of God. But let me tell you the other reason how faith comes. Faith also comes by exercising. If you want your muscles stronger, you have to exercise. If you want your faith bigger, you have to exercise your faith. Lord, if you just sit around praying all day, Lord, please make my faith bigger. Please help my faith get bigger. Here's the best way to do, do that. Volunteer to serve. Go help somebody. Reach in your pocket and give some money away. Do something with your faith, and your faith will grow. I've discovered in my life that I have different categories of my life where my faith is stronger in some categories than others. And over the years, I've been able to discern those. And so in my life, the challenge for me isn't to is to exercise my faith in areas where I'm already strong in faith. My challenge is to find those little places where my faith's only about this big and say, Lord, I need to work on that part of my life. And you can do that too by exercising your faith. This is good preaching. Now here's the fourth, here's the fourth thing, just the application point, and that is the power of forgiveness. Or we might say spiritual healing. The power of forgiveness or spiritual healing. How many times do we come to Jesus with our own idea of what we think we need only to discover that once Jesus' presence comes, he reveals a much deeper need in our life? How often do we think if this one thing would just turn around, then I would be well, I'd be healthy, I'd be on balance, I'd be happy. This is what we think. Or if I could just get to this one position or get rid of that problem, or unload this relationship, 
then my life would be right. We, we do this frequently. Listen to your pastor. God always looks deep into our hearts and often reveals more important issues. Jesus is in a private home. He's teaching. It was obvious to everyone why this man had been brought to Jesus. It was obvious to everyone. He's, a, he's paralyzed. That's why he's there. They knew his great need was a healing miracle in his body. Everybody could see that. Uh, and, and so, in spite of that, nevertheless, Jesus sees in the paralytic man a much deeper need, a spiritual healing. And now we see the power of forgiveness at work. Before Jesus healed this man's body, he first offered healing for his heart. Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus did this repeatedly, we find in the Gospels. The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman whom we studied a couple of weeks ago, she said that he said the same thing to her. At one point in that discourse, he says, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. That's really good news. You might remember that Peter, the apostle Peter's mother-in-law, had gotten very, very ill at one point, And he says to Jesus, Lord, you think you could stop by my mother-in-law's house and pray for her? She's really sick. And Jesus said, yeah, let's do that. And so Jesus goes to the house of the mother-in-law of Peter, the apostle Peter, and heals his mother-in-law. And in that context, he says, woman, your sins are forgiven. We see it again with the centurion's servant. There's a Roman centurion, and he sends word to Jesus through an ambassador, and says, my servant needs to be healed. And the centurion arrives and says to Jesus, I know, I know that you're a person under authority, even as I am as a, a person under authority, and I know that you could merely say the word, and my servant, who's not here, but in a distance from here, my servant would be healed. Jesus looks at this Roman centurion and says to him, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel, because you get it. You get it. You actually understand lines of authority and you recognize the authority that is in me and you've just reported to me that if you just say the word, my servant in another location will be healed. And Jesus said, that's great faith, pal. That's something. And the servant <laughs> was healed that very hour. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? In that context, Jesus eventually finds this servant and looks at him and says, my son, your sins are forgiven. So time and time again, even in the context of physical healings, we find Jesus offering spiritual healing and forgiveness. wonder what made this man paralyzed to start with. Was he born this way? We don't know. We don't know his name. We don't know the cause of his, his dysfunction. We just know he's paralyzed. We don't know if he's quadriplegic, paraplegic. We don't know. He just can't get off the mat. We don't know. But you have to wonder. Because we know in the real world, shame and guilt, the result of sin, can paralyze your life. We know that, don't we? We know it can damage your immune system make you more susceptible to disease and disorder, shame and guilt. 
So the first thing he says to this man is, son, your sins are forgiven. It's a good thing. What we learn here is that God's forgiveness of sin can and often does produce healing in other areas of our lives. Physical healing, emotional healing, relational healing. Just to be free of your sin, free of your shame and guilt, because we all walk around with it. Every one of us walked in the room today carrying some load of guilt and shame. But to be free of it can heal us in all kinds of ways. I love the fact that we do so many things in our community as a local church, provide counseling, financial assistance, support groups, ministry to the poor, ministry to the neighborhoods. I love all that. But you know, the greatest opportunity we have is to share the love of, love of God found in a relationship with Jesus Christ because that is the central, the central need of every person in the world. The most important place in life is to know that your sins are forgiven and that your life has been made right with God. Amen? Because out of that forgiveness, the removal of our shame and guilt, comes freedom, comes liberty, comes healing, comes restoration. I've seen lots of people attend our church over the years. Beth and I are now in our 40th year of pastoring Union Chapel. This is year 40. No, no, I, I, I hesitate. I paused because I, I suddenly felt really tired. I'm not sure. No, I, I'm fine. I feel fine. <laughs> we actually know the approximate number of people who have attended our church over the last 40 years. That number's somewhere around 60,000 different people. And people come to church for all kinds of different reasons. But they include a felt need. Something's wrong, I'm in a fix, I'm in a mess, I'm in a desperate place, or I'm in a life transition. I've got financial issues, marital issues, trouble with my kids, or I'm just raising a family for the first time and I want my kids to be exposed to the gospel. And all kinds of things motivate, but it's out of a felt need. People feel the need to connect with Jesus. And another thing that happens is people, if they hang around long enough, they start connecting to the story of Jesus. I mean, just telling this story today, you know, it's intriguing, isn't it? It's almost compelling. It just makes you want to kind of draw in. Uh, you know, if Jesus was teaching in one of your living rooms today, how cool would that be? Wouldn't you want to go? How many of you would like to be invited to that meeting? to just sit and listen to Jesus offer the word. And so, and so people are naturally drawn to him as they should be. And so, so this connection to the content of the gospel, you see people come first with a felt need and then a connection with the story and how powerful it is. And, and then finally, a commitment is made. There, there's a sense that, that there's truth here, that this Jesus that, that pastor keeps talking about, he came to the earth, lived a sinless life, offered himself sacrificially on the cross to die for my sins, 
And there's something about that story that has the ring of truth about it. And that on the third day, he rose from the dead and defeated death and hell in the grave. All of the things that we're most afraid of, he's already busted up and destroyed. And he gives us hope. And there's, there's a ring of truth to that. And so at some point, people make a commitment to embrace that truth. So you come with a need. You are intrigued by the power of the story. And then you take the step that commits my life. Could I encourage you to think about taking that step today, if that's your need? Because there's great power in forgiveness. Enormous power to change your story your spiritual life. So would you pause with me and just pray for a moment? Could I just remind us that no matter our station in life, all of us have sinned. We've all failed. We've all fallen short of God's ideal, his best. And friend, you may be a wonderful person. You may be sensitive. You may be caring. You may be an essentially good person, but it does not change your need for Jesus. Most people in our culture believe that good people go to heaven. That's not actually true. The only people who make it to heaven are people who are forgiven because we all need forgiveness. So let me encourage you today to admit your need. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Admit it. Lord, I've done things wrong. I've sinned. I know I'm wonderful or sensitive or caring and good, but I admit that I have sinned. I'm not perfect. No one is. And as you admit your need, then believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then finally, confess him as your Savior and Lord. Make your commitment. Take that step. Do it right now. You can pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins, all the things I've done wrong. I believe that Jesus Christ died for me and offers me hope. So, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I commit to follow you beginning this day. Thank you for everything you've done for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, if you just prayed that prayer, let me just make this pronouncement to you. My son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us?